It might be less common than a century ago, but influenza is still a potentially dangerous killer. My next guest has spent a federal career working to keep influenza outbreaks bottled up. For his work, he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Dr. Daniel Jernigan is director of the Influenza Division at the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and he joins me now. Dr. Jernigan, good to have you on. Great. Great to be here. So tell us about your work. What does it take to stay on top of possible influenza outbreaks, or I guess we've actually had some, but CDC has been able to keep it fairly contained. Yeah, the problem with the influenza is that this virus is constantly changing. And so that means that we have to follow the virus constantly with surveillance and collect specimens from people's noses all around the globe and characterize those viruses and see how they're changing. Because they're changing all the time, that means we have to keep the vaccine updated all the time. And there's been some changes just in the last 10 years to one of the bad influenza viruses, one called H3N2. That particular virus has made it really difficult for treatments, for vaccines, and for surveillance. And so it's a challenge all the time. And what are some of the mechanisms in the United States that have kept Americans relatively safe from it versus other parts of the world where it can still wipe out lots of people or get lots of people sick? Well, flu has been with us for a very long time, millions of years. Uh, And we've known about the flu virus only since the 1930s. Uh, And we know about what major problems flu can cause from pandemics that have happened in the past. One of the big ones was in 1918 when about 50 million people globally were killed by that flu. Uh, it had a significant impact on World War I. It actually uh, changed the course of that. And so flu is, can be a bad killer, but it's also something that we get every uh, winter. And so with that, we have to have systems in place where we can sur- monitor it, do the surveillance for it, and make sure that the drugs that are out there to treat it still work and that the vaccines that are there to prevent it uh, are getting updated. And over the years, how has CDC's ability to monitor and maintain surveillance on it improved? What are some of the techniques you have now that you might not have had a generation ago? Well, you know, looking back when the U.S. government started with influenza uh, surveillance back in the 1940s, uh, they actually were just able to grow the virus uh, in eggs. And so since that time, we've come a long way, uh, especially in the last three to four years where we've moved from some of the newer molecular techniques where we can look at the genes on the inside of the, uh, the influenza virus to techniques called sequencing, where we can actually completely describe the genes. And those genes are the instructions for how the flu virus makes copies of itself when it's infecting somebody. That genetic sequencing uh, we've been able to d- deploy throughout the United States uh, for all of the specimens coming from the U.S. and from about uh, 143 national influenza centers around the globe uh, where they send in their specimens and we're able to do that full sequencing. With that, we can see very minor changes and see some of the slick tricks that these uh, viruses are able to pull a little bit quicker and able to predict a lot better. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel Jernigan, director of the Influenza Division at the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He's also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And how is CDC, how is your division organized so that you have some people surveilling and checking the DNA samples and what's coming in the reports from the field 
And then there's people that have to work on the lab side to develop vaccines and so forth. How does all that machinery come together? Well, we have about 300 or so staff that uh, are in various locations around the globe. Most of us are in Atlanta. Uh, About half of us here are working in the laboratory. The other half are epidemiologists where they're looking at the data and monitoring different systems for how flu is moving through the community. Those that are outside the United States are in strategic locations, mostly where the uh, avian influenza is uh, threatens to emerge. So we have people in China, in Vietnam, Thailand, uh, India, uh, different places uh, in Asia, but then also in other parts of the globe as well. They're spending their time there looking in live bird markets, uh, collecting specimens from people that get infected with bird flu uh, that uh, happen to have a spillover infection from those uh, animals. Because we know that if we can find what's happening with those animal viruses that have a propensity to cause disease in humans, those might be the ones that uh, can get with some of the seasonal flu or with some swine flu where they mix up their genes, they reassort. And if that happens, you can actually have a pandemic occur, which is what happened in 1918, 1957, 1968, and most recently in 2009 when the swine influenza viruses commingled with some bird and human viruses and came up with a brand new pandemic H1N1. Have some of the modern tools like social media reporting and artificial intelligence helped this whole effort? Yes. And so we actually work uh, through a a program that's uh, run out of our epidemiology group here uh, at CDC called called FluSight. And FluSight is a, uh, a forecasting system that uh, we work with 25 uh, different modelers. They're academic or government or other modelers that utilize various different data inputs. Some of them are social media, some of them are weather, some of them are economic. <laughs> There's all kinds of different data that they use that information plays into each one of their own forecasts, and then that information is compiled for a composite uh, or ensemble forecast that we put out once a week during the season. So we certainly use that information, but the thing about flu is you really need to know about the actual virus that's causing disease. And so for that reason, we have uh, 4,500 providers across the U.S. that provide information to us, but also put swabs into people's noses to, <laughs> to collect their specimens. And those get sent in so that we test probably about 100,000 specimens per year. And then uh, of those, about 45,000 turn out to be positive for flu. And then from those, we do a full characterization, of, you know, understand everything about that virus for about 6,000 of them. And then from that, we can make in you know, much better estimates of what's going to happen uh, in terms of uh, which of those viruses are going to be uh, coming up and uh, needing to go into the vaccine. And you've emphasized nose swabbing as opposed to mouth. So I guess it's more a function of living in snot than in saliva. (laughs) So uh, if you were to get the best specimen possible for a flu sample, you would do what's called a nasopharyngeal swab. And naso means nose pharynx means throat. And so you actually put a person with their back of their head to a wall, and then you put one of these metal uh, thin swabs all the way back in until until they start watering, their eyes start watering. 
And so that's, uh, that's called an NP swab or nasopharyngeal swab, and that's where the virus tends to really like to grow. Uh, and that's where when you're standing, let's say, uh, talking with somebody who's infected with flu and they cough, and you breathe in, that virus gets to the back of your throat. There's receptors there uh, on your respiratory cells that those viruses like, and they grab onto it, and then they can make their way into your respiratory cells and start making copies of themselves. And that's how the virus likes to infect other people. And what has sustained your passion for chasing influenza all these years? Every day is different. That's one thing. The other thing is that the, uh, the proximity of uh, investigation to implementation of public health is very close. And by that, I mean that uh, we can find out information about what's happening and within you know, days uh, of interpreting that information, make recommendations, um, you know, start to develop vaccine candidate viruses and things like that that can have a significant impact. So the ability to have impact is great and the ability to do that really quickly from the initiation of a problem to the uh, solution, that's, uh, that's what really makes it very interesting. Dr. Daniel Jernigan is director of the Influenza Division at the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. Sure, my pleasure. Find a link to more information and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but... Don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more. Hey, hon, what you doing with your fun? Do flowers have best friends? I don't know. Hey, look. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council.